Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. That group that was really on the fringe now is the dominant group. That is so fascinating. And I think the ways that they have established their dominance has been through generating extremely popular music. Almost any worship song that you'll hear today has some sort of tie to a charismatic congregation. And then also being really skilled at mass media and marketing. And you can see that in the political sphere as well that that style of doing politics is kind of the new norm. That was the voice of Leah Payne, Associate Professor of American Religious History at Portland Seminary, and a commentator on religion, politics, and popular culture, appearing in The Washington Post, NBC News, and Rolling Stone. From Christianity Today, you're listening to Music and Meaning with Charlie Peacock. In 1999, I published a book entitled At the Crossroads, an insider's look at the past, present, and future of contemporary Christian music. Publishers Weekly described the book as revealing how, quote, limited and particularized visions of the Christian life had contributed to the industry's failures, end quote. Not failures commercially, but as an exemplar of what music created by Christians could be. I was advocating for a broader, more adventurous approach to making music, encouraging artists in the industry to explore and innovate beyond genre and self-imposed commercial boundaries. Having come up in jazz and pop, I'd moved to Nashville in 1989 to work with new friends at the heart of CCM's history, in particular the Hearn family of Sparrow Records, referenced in episode one. I was a bona fide insider for 10 years, wrote the book, then left Nashville in 2000 to attend seminary in St. Louis. On returning to Nashville, I took a job as an A&R executive and got busy overseeing and producing artists and recordings. few days a week, I had to be in the office, not the studio, 30 miles apart. I had Amy, a very capable assistant at the office, but I needed someone at the studio, too. So I did what any savvy senior executive does. I went to Starbucks and hired my new assistant, Leah Payne. Hi, welcome to Starbucks. What can I get started for you? Hi, did you need a couple there? Yeah. All right, it'll be 17.48. Anyway, I saw this young person and said, yep. She's the one, and she was. 
In fact, far more than I could see or know. Not only was Leah an excellent assistant and lovely person, she had a robust intellect and would go on to grad school and a PhD. Ultimately, Leah built upon and far surpassed the research I did for my book or that of any others I've read. As a leading scholar and historian in the study of Pentecostal revivalism, Leah's research led to the historical beginnings of the limited and particularized visions of the Christian life that have shaped the music, music created by mostly white evangelical Christians for over 120 years. You're about to hear the story, all from her latest book, published by Oxford University Press, titled God Gave Rock and Roll to You, A History of Contemporary Christian Music. We'll be right back with my esteemed guest, former Starbucks barista and executive assistant, my friend for life, Professor Dr. Leah Payne. The rock is about to roll. Right out of college, I was married to an aspiring musician and got a job in Nashville, Tennessee at a Starbucks. It just happened to be the Starbucks where a certain renowned producer used to frequent. That led to working for you, Charlie, as your assistant for several years and ended up just being interested in going back to grad school. And I went into religious studies. You know, I was trained to look at American religious history through media and innovators. In fact, I remember when we we had our first conversation about this book, I talked to you about, I want to go where the train tracks start of contemporary Christian music. Not where the sound of rock starts, but where the communities that created these revival meetings that ended up being the people who created this music. And so those people got their start in the early 20th century. When I wrote my book on the subject, I touched on some of the deeper historical Christian influences on the direction of the music. I was primarily focused on the creation of word records in the 1950s moving forward. Leah has written the whole story. When I think about the people and kind of the big key events and ideas that fueled contemporary Christian music, I think of people, places, and things that shaped what would become contemporary Christian music. In terms of people, I think of people like John and Eva Green Benson, who were revivalist people, so people who believed that American Christianity was in poor health or even dying, and it needed to be revived. And the way to do that would be through revival meetings. So if you think about the kind of stereotypical tent meeting where there's a preacher preaching emotively and singing 
really poignant, emotional songs. The Bensons were involved in holiness revivals. The holiness movement in the United States was a movement in the late 19th and early 20th century that had really gained steam by that time that was dedicated to the idea that the Holy Spirit would empower people and make them holy. And in some cases, entirely perfect. And a lot of times that happened in this moment called an altar call. An altar call is a moment in a revival meeting when a preacher will give a call to the audience, and it's almost always accompanied by really moving music um, to dedicate their lives to God. And in the case of the holiness movement, to holiness and to come forward to a place where oftentimes there would be an altar like for communion, but it didn't have to be. It could just be like a place in the front of the audience and to receive holiness and power from the Holy Spirit. And the Bensons were a part of what would become the Church of the Nazarene. So they were Nazarene holiness people. And when they experienced the power of God in a revival meeting, they wanted to respond. And the way that they responded was to create publishing in Nashville, in the city of Nashville. And they published tons of revivalist songs. So the songs that fueled the moment that changed their lives so much, they started publishing and they weren't alone. In the early 20th century, um, there were the people that would go on to create the business of contemporary Christian music. Many of them, the vast majority, were either from the holiness tradition or from the Baptist tradition or from a new movement um, called the Pentecostal movement. And the Pentecostal revivals of the early 20th century, a lot of them grew out of holiness revivals. And they were characterized most stereotypically through speaking in tongues or prayers for divine healing and prophecy. And most of the music that came out of these holiness and revivalist songbooks came from holiness people, Baptist people, Pentecostal people. And it reflected the things that they were interested in. It reflected an anticipation of the second coming. This idea that Jesus could come back at any moment in time, and you definitely want to be ready, and you also want to read the signs of what's going on to see if now could be the time. They were also very concerned about social issues, especially social issues aimed at protecting the young, and probably the biggest one in that era would have been the temperance movement, which eventually abolished the legal sale and production of alcohol. And I want to take a pledge in this audience to join me in a pledge that you will never rest until this old God-hating, Christ-hating, whiskey-soaked, Sabbath-breaking, blaspheming, infidel, bootlegging old world is bound to the cross of Jesus Christ by the golden chains of love. 
There were a lot of songs about um, protecting American society from the evils of alcohol use and alcoholism. The Bensons were definitely supporters of that. And then um, a strong sense of patriotism. A lot of the songs that come from um, the predominantly white holiness, Baptist and Pentecostal movements were infused with patriotism. And then, you know, the Bensons and and people, other other people, revivalist songbook publishers of the era, like a guy named James D. Vaughn, they were business people. They really believed that the way to serve God was through creating these businesses that would produce music that would um, help bring people close to God. So those people were instrumental in creating what became contemporary Christian music. As far as the places, two places really come to mind as kind of the core of what becomes CCM. The first, of course, is the city of Nashville. When he descending from heaven on the clouds as he rides in his I'll be joyfully carried to meet him on the wings of that great speckled bird. That's fine, Roy. Thank you so much. That was Roy Acuff with his famous number, The Speckled Bird. And now we're going to call on our good friend David Stone. For- Nashville is an ideally located place if you want to tour and get to a huge amount of the population within driving distance. So Nashville makes a lot of sense from that perspective. And it also became a hub for publishing creating songbooks and then eventually creating recorded music. And it was also the location of a lot of these holiness, Baptist and Pentecostal music makers, the kinds of churches and conventions that really allowed music to be traded back and forth and to be discovered. A lot of that happened in the city of Nashville. And I think one key to understanding all of this is that at that time, Nashville is the segregated South. The businesses that went on to create what was contemporary Christian music. It's almost exclusively white. So while there is appropriation of Black music, one example would be the song Old Time Religion, which was popularized by legendary African-American Fisk Jubilee singers. Um, That was appropriated for white audiences and then sold. There were uh, certainly extraordinary Black and white gospel singing that was happening all around at the same time. In terms of the business side of things, they were very segregated and also in terms of the worship. So a lot of the music that goes on to become contemporary Christian music It's shaped by those patterns of segregation and appropriation. This year's expanded Dove Award categories includes the traditional black gospel recorded song of the year. The nominees are Higher Ground, Vanessa Mitchell artist, traditional. 
And then if there's another place that really shaped the creation of contemporary Christian music, I would say it's the West Coast, California, a little bit more specifically, and the bigger cities, especially Los Angeles in the early 20th century, in part because that's where the creation of mass media and celebrity culture really took off. Where any office boy or young mechanic can be a panic with just a good-looking pants. I'm thinking of the early days of things that go on to create Hollywood and Hollywood culture. The, the idea that Christians could figure out a way to harness mass media, uh, mass media makers like Amy Semple McPherson um, on the West Coast, um, and that we're especially good at, at figuring out how to use celebrity culture to get revivalist messages out into the world. Now, up to this time, women leaders were very plain, very um, conservative in their dress, and they had to look holy. Mm-hmm. And Sister McPherson was out here in the West where there were movie stars and where there were all kind of people that looked attractive, and she realized that women preachers didn't have to look like last year's warmed-over biscuit, you know, <laughs> but that they could look up-to-date, nice, have a nice hairdo, look nice, and wear stylish clothes. That is a huge part of creating the atmosphere for contemporary Christian music, because contemporary Christian music, in large part, followed that logic, the idea that you would create and promote celebrity figures who were good agents of revivalist messages. There are certain things that happened in the early 20th century that made the creation of an entire industry possible when it wouldn't have been possible before. So the idea that Southern holiness, Baptist and Pentecostal people could create their own businesses that were based in songbook publishing um, and that would go on to be based in recorded music, that wouldn't have been possible in any other era before because it used to be really expensive to print and to publish written materials. But in the early 20th century, there were some tech innovations that had happened a little while before that made the idea that a middle-class person could create a publishing business, especially for middle-class white people who benefited from many economic and political advantages. There are exceptions, but a large majority of people who created contemporary Christian music come from those Southern networks and from the West Coast. That wouldn't be possible without tech innovations. It's things that happened before the creation of rock and roll, which most people think when they think of contemporary Christian music, they think the engine for it was rock and roll. But if we're looking at the business end of things, um, the businesses and those revivalist networks, those are the things that made it possible so that when rock and roll came along and when white revivalists decided to embrace rock and roll, they already had this business infrastructure set up and ready to promote what eventually would become contemporary Christian music. It's 
Oh, man. The music history nerd in me is brimming with satisfaction. I love the detail, especially knowing there is no neutrality in any of these choices, positively or negatively. They all in some way contribute to where modern Christian music is today, in creation, meaning, and industry, and also in some part where popular music on the whole is. With Leah's sturdy, knit-and-grit historical foundation laid, it's time for some entertainment, with meaning, of course. Good afternoon, everybody. This is station WORD, broadcasting from the great stadium of life. We have for you a play-by-play description of the greatest and most important of all gridiron classics, the game of life. Our game here will be underway in just a few moments. And while we await the opening whistle, we'd like to point out some interesting sidelights surrounding this momentous occasion. Down on the field, we can see that both teams are completing their pregame workouts. To our right are the players representing Christianity. And this Christian team, by the way, has the finest of all coaches. Noted for his unerring wisdom, this great mentor, Jesus Christ, is the model of perfection in the coaching realm. However, as we look down to our left, we see another great squad and a very cunning and clever coach. This is the team coached by Satan, the forces of evil. And believe you me, this guy Satan and his men will be tough to handle. Both teams are lined up now for the opening kickoff. The goals of the two teams are exactly opposite, that of Christianity being the goal of heaven, while the forces of evil will head toward their goal, hell. And now it's going to be Satan's team kicking off to Christianity. And there's the referee's whistle as the game is underway. It's criticism kicking a high end-over-end kick. It's taken down on the goal line by average Christian. Leah, this recording is from 1954, 70 years ago. Tell us what we've been listening to. Break it down for us. Yes, one of my favorite stories is um, the story of of Gerald McCracken, who has a very young man. Um, He was a sportscaster on a radio station in Waco, Texas, and a Baylor University grad, and multi-generational Baptist, a Baptist minister's son, actually. And he got a request to come and speak to a local youth group about Christianity and football, which to me is like, is there anything more Texan than, you know, a Baptist getting asked to talk about Christianity and football? the youth group. And instead of coming in and giving a talk himself, he created a play-by-play faux broadcast of um, a football game called The Game of Life, a thrilling play-by-play description of an imaginary football game. And basically, the plot of The Game of Life is there's a character um, on this gridiron called Average Christian, who is coached by, of course, Jesus Christ. This record, he sent it off to this youth group, and it caused a sensation in the Baptist world. Pretty soon, this idea that you could create a record, that it would be for Christian education for young people, and that there was a high demand for it. I think that that is one of the most important moments in the development of contemporary Christian music. Gerald McCracken went on to found Word Records, and it was based on the imaginary call station letters for the Game of Life, W-O-R-D. This is station W-O-R-D saying, it was a pleasure to be with you in this broadcast of the Game of Life. There's sport in taking swings at evangelical culture, 
sort of high-altitude pugilism, scrappy tendency to view past and present evangelical stories through a lens of skepticism and outright dismissal. Don't get me wrong, a good chunk of critique is warranted, necessary even. But here's the rub. Focusing on a few stories, as I've done here, can too easily move from sincere historical analysis to snarky caricature if I'm not careful. And I want to take the subject more serious than that. Not because I'm defending the indefensible or going gaga for the goofy, no. But because real flesh and blood people are involved. And the DNA choices made in 1920 or 1950 might still be in the contemporary bloodstream of humanity, shaping our present and future. And humanity is my neighbor. And I want to know my neighbor and love them wisely, honestly, and sincerely with humility. It might interest you to know that the historian featured here can experience two things as real at once. Leah can reveal history to us, provide analysis and commentary, and be grateful for the music that was, in a sense, made possible because of the revivalists, the Kraken's average Christian, the game of life, and the on-time arrival of Word Records. I grew up in a very small, charismatic congregation, and music was just everything in terms of our worshiping community. Uh, Music was just a really huge part of my upbringing. That was the part that told me that it was important because it was also the, really in many ways, the primary delivery method (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. for big ideas about the world. You know, my own background in in charismatic church culture taught me, like, this is important. You should pay attention to this. And thankfully, Leah did. And her book resists the temptation to take snarky pot shots. Instead, she invites the reader into a deep, wide historical journey. It begins, as she noted, with the invention of revivalist music publishing, and in her book, ends with contemporary stories, including the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, with its unique blend of prophecy-linked, shofar-blowing prayers and violence, and the ways Christians continue to consume worship product in the form of music, merchandise, speakers, radio, and mass events. fortunate to have a diverse musical life. I've been a local small-town musician, an international recording artist, a talent scout gatekeeper. I've created and produced the songs the Christian church sings and pop songs the whole world sings. I've made idiosyncratic improvisational music few people understand, and music for Facebook and Instagram. You know, background music for the New York Times Food Channel or a wedding in Jakarta or some cats playing with a yarn ball. The people, places, and things that make up the 120-plus year history Leah's book describes are not unique to humanity. 
They have no exclusive corner on the absurd, the beautiful, the ridiculous, or the helpful. In every area of my musical life, I have met people who both enriched and enraged me. I have heard what I consider to be crazy, misguided approaches to music and culture from everywhere. You name it. Spotify executives, a fan on Facebook just yesterday, the church, a Christian record company, Universal Music, Clive Davis's assistant. We could be here all day making a list. It's easy to see the errors of the past and completely miss my own new blind spots, though. What are they, I wonder? This podcast is not just about avoiding the pitfalls of our predecessors, whomever they may be, but about expanding our own understanding and vision for music, people, and the planet. One thing I've learned, though, in 40 years of asking the big questions around the subject of music and meaning is this. Music needs no apologetic to exist. It doesn't become good because someone finds what they think is a good use for it socially, politically, or religiously. No, the idea of it, done well, is imbued with good, the good of the Creator and the Creators. And for this reason, music stands on its own. The common theme running through God Gave Rock and Roll to You is that music on its own is not good enough for these particular religious, revivalist people. It is a means to an end, a tool for triumph, a weapon of war. This is agenda-led pragmatism, not artistry. If we lead with this idea, we shouldn't be surprised if we get some of the same outcomes found in Leah's book over and over, whether it be 1900 or 2024. And this is not a warning particular to religious people. Right now, pop music is making similar pragmatic choices with predictable outcomes. One of the valuable things about studying this, I think, is it shows how theology is shaped by the market. There can be no doubt that consumers have shaped Christian theology in a lot of different ways, and music is one of them, for sure. We look back and say, now I can explain to you why this was going to happen. But in the moment, very few of us understand um, or can, can recognize For me, I find a lot of comfort in that, that I don't really know what's coming, but I know that there's a lot of resilience in Christian communities. One of the things that I thought was really fascinating is that there are always dissenting voices. There's always somebody saying, well, wait a minute. I guess I hope to be one of the people who has the wisdom in the moment to be a dissenting voice when when it's time to be a dissenting voice. If we lead with music, We'll end up with music, because art begets art. Propaganda and pragmatism never give birth to art-making of the cosmic betterment variety, no matter how much you think your cause is justified. When personal good happens in the midst of music and agenda, just call it a gift, not a norm to champion. It's more like a momentary mercy for a broken world. Standing at this water's edge Looking in at God's own heart 
Listening to music and meaning with Charlie Peacock, a CT Media original podcast. Until next time, practice reflection, stay curious, playful, and positive.